Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Spring, it isn't just for outdoor garden tasks. Your houseplants need some springtime love as well. We chat with the author of Houseplant Warrior, Rafael DiLalo, about your houseplants' needs for the right light, the right humidity, and he has a list of easy care houseplants for low light conditions. He's based in Cleveland, Ohio, and Raphael also has some houseplant advice for those who also must muddle through cold, dark winters. And we talk about his business, OhioTropics.com. And yes, he is growing outdoor tropical plants in Cleveland, even a banana plant. Also, we get a quick tip from America's favorite retired college horticulture professor, Debbie Flower, who explains how careful pruning of outdoor plants can lessen the threat from pests and disease. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Labutalon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. My next guest has been growing houseplants for over 30 years. His name is Rafael Delalo, and Rafael has a new book out called Houseplant Warrior, Seven Keys to Unlocking the Mysteries of Houseplant Care. It's a wonderful book, and he has a wonderful website as well, ohiotropics.com. And Rafael, it's uh, interesting how you uh, got into the houseplant habit. <laughs> it yes. was due to your father's habit. <laughs> That's right. So my my father smoked quite quite heavily um, when I was growing up, and so he's up to two packs of cigarettes a day, and I just hated it. And I remember, I think I started growing houseplants sometime, and I was I was definitely in grade school or middle school, and my my family's always garden, so as as long as I can remember, I've always grown plants. But the houseplant thing started because I I think I had read somewhere when I was a kid that houseplants cleaned your air. And of course, I, I liked plants to begin with, but that was a good excuse, you know, to to start to hoard house plants. So I started, you know, filling up our all of our windowsills and our our windows in in middle school. That's a a very David Sedaris type of thing to develop <laughs> as a child. Very good. I like that. And what's interesting too is uh, your college degree is in what chemical engineering. Yes, it is. And I, I actually just quit my corporate job back in November of 2021 to focus on my on my website and my blog and my writing and everything else that will crop up from this. <laughs> and congratulations so, on that, too. I mean, for for starting up the blog in 2017 and having it zoomed to the top of the charts, uh, you, you've put a lot of work into that and uh, all your consultations and a lot of other things that we'll point out on this uh, little journey we will uh, take here today. OhioTropics.com. Talk a little bit about your website. Sure. So it, it's funny how it started because uh, I started it five years ago. Um, and like you mentioned, it was in March, actually. And it all started because one of my friends who was moving from the West Coast um, to, to the Cleveland area where I am, she called me and she said, I think you should start a blog. And she said, I follow this one lady out West. 
and you know, I receive her newsletter and, and she tells me when, when I need to do things with my plants and what I need to do. And she said, I found it so helpful. And she said, you know so much about plants. I think you should start a blog. And so when, when I get excited about something, I, I go full force. And so the next day I started my website and I, I had always thought about it, but that kind of, that was the catalyst to really, to really actually do something about it. So that's, that's how it all started. And it initially started, I, I almost wish I hadn't chosen the word Ohio tropics because, you know, I, I don't want to regionalize myself, but, um, it, it originally started because I wanted to start writing about growing tropical plants outside in in cold weather gardens to give them a tropical flair. So that's really how it started. And I, I did start talking about uh, writing about orchids as well. But that was the idea behind my blog. But then it segued into pretty much all houseplant care and tropical plant care from there. Well, here's our first scenic bypass of the day. What sort of success have you had <laughs> growing tropical plants outdoors in Ohio? Oh gosh, I, it's wonderful, and it's about to get easier for me because um, I'm about to get a greenhouse this spring, which I'm super, super excited about. I mean, I've overwintered some stuff, you know, indoors. Some stuff I treat like annuals, and then other things come back. And some people may be shocked to know that you can grow. Uh, th there's a hardy banana plant that you can grow in all 50 states if you have protection. Where I live, you would need some winter protection. And I get lazy though. And so one, one year I planted this hardy banana. It's Musa Bastu is the, the botanical name. And it came back the second season and it, it got maybe nine or 10 feet tall. It was spectacular. But I think the area that I planted it in, um, it, you know, we have really bad, heavy clay soil here. Um, and we had a particularly wet winter, that second winter that I was trying to overwinter it. So it rotted. Um, but I am going to try again this year, put it in a better location. And, you know, if, if you if you have good, well-drained soil that's not staying super wet in the winter and you mulch it in, in my area, it will come back. And it's really cool to be able to grow something like that in, in my area as well. Cleveland is in which USDA zone? So if you look on a map, there's there's a little strip right along the lake that's supposedly 6A. Otherwise, I, I, I'm not quite sure I believe that, though. <laughs> Uh, where I am, it might be bordering 6A or 5B. So it really depends on, on where you live within the city. All gardening is local, as I used to say a lot. That's true. That's <laughs> yeah, very true. And, and as you point out, every yard has a microclimate where you can do a little zone extending and try out different oh, yeah. plants. I would think in your situation, trying to grow basically what we would grow outdoors here in USDA zone nine outdoors there. You're uh, doing a lot of work in, in pots, I would think. I am. I, I do a lot of, a lot of things in pots. And like I said, it'll be easier once I get my greenhouse, I could just shove them in the greenhouse. Speaking about the microclimates in our old house before we moved, um, I had a couple, I have a couple more examples that, that, you know, might be very interesting for whoever's listening and, you know, the importance of, of microclimates and, and really the power of them, if you can create one, a suitable one. So I actually had elephant ears. So, you know, just a plain old Colocasia esculenta or taro root. And I planted them in, in my backyard in my old house in the corner. So there was a nice protected corner next to my, where our air conditioner was. And the house itself was aluminum siding, but the bottom of the house had a strip of, 
uh, the base of the house was brick. And so I planted it right in that corner, right next to the brick. And those things came back every single year with no added protection or mulch. And so I got this gigantic, huge clump of these colocasias that came back every year. And I was shocked. But, you know, that's the microclimate and the soil there, you know, it, it dried out, you know, sufficiently and it, it didn't stay wet in the winter. And it, it just, you know, next to the brick, I'm sure that helped with, you know, maintaining a, a warmer microclimate. And then one year I even had dahlias come back in, in a raised bed, uh, not a raised bed, but uh, just in a, in a bed that I had in, in the front of uh, front garden that, that I had. And that, that was a little bit mulched um, at the time, but, you know, we have very unpredictable weather here. So it, 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 it can vary drastically, but you, you can be surprised what you can grow if you have a good microclimate. Were those elephants ears growing on a, a southern or a western exposure? So those were actually facing. So that side of the house was facing east. Mm. Yeah. So they would get some morning sun and, you know, midday sun and then nothing after that. All right. Because here in California, if you're growing elephants ears and we can grow them outdoors here, you're growing sure. them on the north side of the house in, sure. because they need a lot of shade here. Yeah. And I find that they can tolerate a lot of sun as long as you keep them well watered. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this podcast. My criteria, though, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, and a product I would buy again. And you know who checks all those boxes? It's SmartPots. SmartPots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. SmartPots are sold around the world, and they're proudly made 100% right here in the USA. SmartPots come in a wide array of sizes and colors and can be reused year after year. Some models even have handles, and that makes them a lot easier to move around the yard. Because the fabric breathes, SmartPots are better suited than plastic pots, especially for hot climates. That breathable fabric has other benefits, too. Water drainage issues? Not with smart pots. Roots that go round and round choking the root ball like they do in plastic pots? Doesn't happen with smart pots. These benefits will help you get a bigger, better plant than what you've gotten in the past with the same size plastic or other hard container. Smart pots are available at independent garden centers as well as select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your SmartPot order by using the coupon code FRED. F-R-E-D. Use it at checkout from the SmartPot store. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information about the complete line of SmartPot's lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer Fred 10% discount, SmartPots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. We're talking with Rafael Delalo, author of the book House Plant Warrior, available wherever you get your books. Uh, let's talk about uh, raising houseplants in Ohio and in cold climates. I, I know a little bit about houseplants here in California, obviously, but uh, what sort of precautions do people in USDA zones six and five and even lower have to take? What are some of the considerations that they have to keep in mind? You know, like you said, it, it can vary a lot depending on where you live. 
And the number one thing that comes to mind is light. I know yourself, you know, living in California, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> um, but where I live, and I, I think it's not even it's not even the USDA zone, but I, I, I feel like, I, of course, that's that's very important as well. But where I live, I feel like we're cursed. Our, our geographical location here on, on Lake Erie, especially on the east side of Cleveland, you know, we have really dark winters and very cloudy days. And I, we're one of the cloudiest cities, I believe, in, in the country, especially in the winter. And with the shorter days and the clouds, it can really pose a challenge to growing houseplants. So what I like to do, um, at least in my sunroom, so I have supplemental lighting that I that I add, and I actually have them year round, but it especially helps out during the winter time when we have really those really short days. Plants can really sulk if, if they don't have enough light in, in the winter time with yellow leaves and you know reduce growth. Um, they'll struggle. They'll struggle. So light definitely is is the number one thing. Um, of course, you know temperature as well. Well, actually, an, another thing to be to be aware of, and th th this is something that I see with a lot of my a lot of my readers. You know, we have all these, you know, cold, long, horrible days, you know, many months of that. And so if you live in a cold climate like I do, and suddenly you have a nice warm day outside, you know, many people are tempted to just put their, you know, pick up their houseplants and put them outside in the sun, straight from indoors. Um, and, you know, they think they're doing something beneficial. What a lot of people don't realize is can't just move a houseplant from indoors straight outdoors immediately to full sun, even if they are sun-loving plants. You cannot do that abruptly, otherwise they'll burn. So a lot of people don't realize that. I had someone reach out to me, you know, she had her string of pearls and there was a nice day. She put it outside in the sun for a few hours and it totally bleached out. And I explained to her, you know, even if you have a sun-loving plant, you have to put it in the shade for a few days, Give you know, assuming the temperature is okay and warm enough for your particular plant in order to let it get acclimated enough, then you have to slowly introduce more and more sun so that it doesn't burn. So that's something that, that a lot of people struggle with. And it's not that the plant doesn't like sun, you just have to acclimate the plant slowly enough so that it doesn't burn. One thing we've heard often when it comes to light and houseplants, uh, some people insist that if there's enough light in the room to read a book, your plants will be happy. Myth or not? I, I've heard that as well. And I would say definitely for certain plants, that's probably fine. So certain low light plants would probably be fine with that. And if you're on the low end of, you know, barely being able to read, it's probably not enough for, for most plants to really thrive. A lot of plants will tolerate that, you know, your, your peace lilies, snake plants or sansevarias, or, you know, they're now classified into the Dracaena genus. Um, they'll hang on for a while, but eventually they'll, you know, they'll slow down and suffer too. Um, Chinese evergreens, too, would tolerate that type of environment. Pothos is a great one. Heartleaf philodendron is also another one. So there are some plants that will definitely tolerate that. But, you know, don't expect them to thrive if you're on the, the low end of that light spectrum. And we should point out as well that in your book, Houseplant Warrior, you highlight many of the plants you just mentioned. And it's a, it's a great little encyclopedia you have included in your book. Thank you. There's also the myth of certain plants that are low light that, you know, people think they're labeled low light too, in, in many cases, like, like snake plants and also rubber trees, Ficus elastica. But in fact, and, and I'm sure you see this in California, you grow those out, you know, many people have those outdoors in full sun and they thrive that way. So 
you know, light, light is paramount. And just because something is labeled low light doesn't mean that it likes low light. It just means that it it tolerates low light in, in many cases. One of the dirty little secrets about growing plants outdoors in California is the fact that the stretch of coastal California from San Diego up to Eureka doesn't have that much sunlight. There's a lot of overcast marine layer fog that persists. And yes, you can get away with growing a, a ficus benjamina in full exposure in a place like San Francisco or Santa Barbara or San Diego. But when you come inland, well, that's when the heat takes over. That's when the intense sun takes over. And that's when the humidity levels drop, too. Here in the Central Valley of California, it's not uncommon this time of year, even and into the summer, of 10 to 20 percent humidity during the day or less. Whereas oh, wow. over on the coast, you've got 50, 60, 70 percent humidity because of the sure. marine layer. Now, I would think there in Cleveland, you don't have to worry about humidity levels in the summertime. But in the wintertime, I would think that with uh, heating units or fireplaces, do you have to supplement the humidity? Because you mentioned in your book that uh, houseplants like a humidity level of like 50 or 60 percent. Yes. So the thing with humidity is that, that I find um, a lot of people, I, I like to think of plant care holistically. So there's a lot of, you have to, you have to consider all the factors, light, your watering, your pots, your potting mixes, all of that works together, humidity, temperature. And, and I talk about that in depth in the book in terms of the relationship between all those factors. But definitely for, you know, indoors here, I, I do run a humidifier in the wintertime in my sunroom. Elsewhere in the house, I don't. But in the sunroom, I, I do run a humidifier. Many of our houseplants are native to tropical rainforest ecosystems, and so they do like higher humidity. But that being said, what's most important is being able to water properly. So if, if you're letting a lot of your leafy tropical plants dry out, you know, get bone dry as far as their, their potting mix is concerned, that's going to cause a lot more harm to your plant and a lot more crispy brown edges on your leaves than low humidity ever will. Now, that's not to say that humidity is not important. If you have both, that's awesome. That's wonderful. But I like to point that out to, to people that proper watering is more important. You know, my indoor air can get painfully dry. Um, and, and I notice from my skin, too, you know, my skin gets dry and flaky. You know, it can get into the, you know, the 30 percentile relative humidity indoors. So I do like to run a humidifier in my sunroom, at least in the, in, you know, 50, 50 to 60 range if I can. Another thing to remember is if you increase your humidity levels, that we, we have to be aware of air circulation because, you know, we don't have wind indoors like we do outdoors. And so that becomes very important to try and prevent any fungal issues. So I have a ceiling fan that I put on low you know, sometimes to just to circulate the air a little bit. So so that's an important factor, too. Well, that's a very good tip. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, you do use supplemental lights. Uh, describe your lighting systems. Yeah, so I, I experiment with different lights. And so right now, uh, I, I use several different ones. In my sunroom right now, I have two. Um, they're basically like shop lights, and they're just fluorescent T5 fixtures. And, you know, they're they're working very well. Although I might switch it out to, uh, to some LED lighting, which I also use in, actually in my, in my light. I do have some plants and, um, some lights in other areas of the house in my basement. I have one over my terrarium. Um, so I have some LED, some full spectrum white LED lights that are 
performing amazingly for, for the clients. I, I don't like, I see a lot of those, you know, this is just personal preference, those purple LED lights that you see, I, I think they're just, you know, not, not aesthetically pleasing. And there's, there's enough of a selection out there that, you know, you can, you can easily avoid that. But I'll probably at some point, you know, get rid of these T5 fluorescents and, and do LEDs in, instead. Are the T5s four foot fixtures with two bulbs in them? Yes. Yeah. The skinny bulbs. Mm -hmm. uh, that's exactly what they are. And how, what is the distance from that light to the plants? And so I, I actually have, so my sunroom faces the long side of the window faces north. And then the short side of the wall faces east. And so I have those right above, near the ceiling of my north-facing wall. And as far as the distance goes, so I, I vary it um, depending on what the plant likes. So right now, you know, I am looking at a, I have a burrow's tail uh, succulent that's literally just a few, a few inches under that. And then I have some plants on the floor um, as well. So, so I, I cater the distance depending on how much light the plant actually likes. All right. Yeah. Lighting, uh, very important, especially where it is, like you say, dark in the wintertime there. Mm -hmm. This has been a pleasure talking with Rafael DeLalo, author of Houseplant Warrior, Seven Keys to Unlocking the Mysteries of Houseplant Care. The website, ohiotropics.com. And if I'm not mistaken, you're also on Instagram. I am. If you just look up ohiotropics, one word, I'm on Instagram. I'm also on YouTube and Facebook as well. There you go. Rafael Delalo, author of Houseplant Warrior. I would say thanks for a few minutes of your time, but uh, thanks for <laughs> a very extended conversation about houseplants. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Fred. Because there are so many demands on your time these days, well, I like to keep the Garden Basics podcast to under 30 minutes. But still, there's a lot more to tackle on all the garden subjects we bring up on the podcast. So for that and a lot more, we're starting up the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter. It'll be on Substack. It'll go into more details about what you just heard on the latest podcast, so, yes, it will be a good supplement for the Garden Basics podcast, but there will be a lot more garden-related material and, uh, you know, probably pictures of my dogs and cats as well. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter. It's on Substack. And best of all, it's free. There's a link in today's show notes. Or just go to Substack.com and do a search for the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred. That's Substack.com. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred Newsletter. Did I tell you it's free? It's free. On a previous episode, we were discussing the chemical imidacloprid, which is a systemic for controlling all sorts of garden pests. And Debbie Flower mentioned this on that episode. The sap comes out of the plant. It comes out in pretty high pressure. And the sucking insect often gets more than they can consume. And so it just goes right through their body or leaks out. And that's something that the ants like. And so the ants will protect the sucking insect from uh, the beneficials. So I put out ant traps. If I had to take it a step further, there are uh, much less toxic pesticides, including some of the horticultural oils that I could have used on the scale that would suffocate them. Uh, insects breathe through their rear end. And so it would clog up their breathing pores. Um, that would have been my next step. But I didn't need to do that. All I did was prune to open up the plant and control the ants. Well, that raises some interesting questions, Debbie. Uh, pruning. 
to control pests. How does that work? It works in a couple of ways. As with the hackberry, it opens the plant up that allows the beneficial insects that are going to come in and eat the scale or lay their babies in the scale, or but functionally control the scale for us. Uh, I was looking at a rose recently at my son's house and happy that I had helped my daughter-in-law prune it because it was full of aphids. And that's happens commonly in spring when we have lots of new growth. And had we left it as dense as it was, previous to our pruning, it had been shorn. So it had been randomly cut into uh, what one of my professors at Rutgers called them hockey pucks and meatballs. <laughs> so geometric shape, a round ball with no attention paid to how the plant really grew. So we went in and as you do with a rose, you cleaned out the center took out the oldest canes, the thickest ones, down at the center and let left a sort of ring around the outside of a few of those and then cut it back at the top. So the new growth is very attractive to the sucking insects, the aphids being the sucking insects, and they are now on that plant. But there were also adult lady beetles, lady beetle larvae, and lacewing larvae in that plant. And those three are consuming those aphids. So the balance of good bug to bad bug is pretty good on that plant right now. And had it been more congested, the lady beetles and lacewings could not have gotten in there to eat those aphids. All right. So opening up a plant gives a bird's eye view, if you will, for the good guys who are flying in and spot something. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And then uh, another way of pruning to remove pests is to actually physically cut them off. In, the, in uh, parts of the country, we have uh, bagworms, and they actually make a, a, a bag out of their own sort of like spider web stuff, own webbing material, and live inside of there and consume plant material protected by this bag. Well, you can just go out, and they're typically at the end in the young growth. You can just go out and cut the whole tip of the branch off and either put it in your green waste or put it in a soapy water uh, container and that will uh, kill those those pests. Another springtime pest that does the same thing is the red-humped caterpillar and you can usually spot them massed on the underside of, of many different trees and shrubs and the easiest control method, cut off the branch where you see them and put it in the trash. Right, right. I did that similar thing with aphids on a honeysuckle, an ornamental honeysuckle growing on a patio cover and the new growth in spring was so full of aphids that all the leaves were, were distorted. When it gets to that level, even though those tips of those branches were out there where the beneficials could get to it. But when it got to that level, I just cut the tips off and put them in my green waste can. There you go. A good quick tip. Your pruning shears as a pest control weapon. It works. It sure does. Debbie Flower, we're here in her garden. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday. It's brought to you by Smart Pots. Garden Basics is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes Apple, iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Google, Podcast Addict, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.